This we all we talking about sports today. Today Sunday. No, today Monday. Today Monday. We talking about uh sports today. So I got Brett on the line. What up, Brett? Hey, how's it going today, Brian? All right, man. You can call me Leonard. You can call me Leonard. Okay. Uh What's 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 going on in sports today? What's 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 your favorite team and what's going on in sports today? What's 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 popping? Well, it seems like uh, the big news in sports, and this shouldn't be a surprise, is, is LeBron James. And I saw late last night that clip from Stephen A. Smith trying to project him going back to uh, South Beach in Miami. What do you think about that? I haven't seen it, so you probably got to tell me about it. Okay. So, Stephen A. Smith is commenting on uh, he's, he's got a 13-year-old son and I believe a, a 9- or 11-year-old playing AAU basketball in Miami, and they just got clips of him, uh, you know, going to some old spots to eat, walking down the street, you know, uh, shaking hands, kissing babies. And Stephen A. Smith just says, hey, as far as I know, people I talk to, he really likes it down there. Don't count Miami out. But, you know, the thing with LeBron is he needs shooters around him. He's going to be a guy to dribble, penetrate, and kick it out. He needs to have shooters around him to be successful. And I don't think you have that in Miami. So, I don't know if that's just Stephen A. Smith trying to get headlines or if he really legitimately believes that's a possibility. Right. So, what team are you going for? See, I, I think he's going to either go to Houston or L.A. I think with uh, Houston, with Harden um, and Chris Paul, he's got two guys that can shoot, which will free him up just to, just to get to the hoop. Uh, I think the 76ers is another possibility, but uh, Markel Folk, he's not really a shooter, and Ben Simmons is not really a shooter either. Ben Simmons uh, his game is tailored a lot like LeBron James. So, to me, uh, Houston or L.A., L.A. is just going to have the attraction of it's the L.A. Lakers, so they're going to be able to pull guys. Um, who do you believe is the front runner right now? Uh, I got to go. I got to go with, uh, let's see, let's see. My, my best, my best is, uh, let's see. Well, my best is I'm going. I'm going with the team. I'm going with teams. I'm not. I'm not going with just, just the players. I'm just going with teams, and I'm just going with uh the uh the Hawks. Really? Right. Okay. Okay. Why the Hawks? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not I, I go with the team. Me, I, I, I like. I like teams. Players, I, I like players okay. too. I, I like to go with the players too. You know, I like working teamwork. I, I like to uh, judge them by team because if, if they don't play by a team and they all and they hog the ball all the time, that that's not playing as that's not playing as uh, legitimate. You know, you're not really sharing the ball with the team. So I, I like to play okay. as a team. You know, and like not not. Not for the players to hog the ball all the time, and you know. 
It's just really a team sport. Okay. The other thing I see that's been kind of dominated the headlines with, uh, I think they said less than 10 weeks now, college football's right around the corner. So I'm, I'm starting to see a lot of way, way, way too early preseason predictions, national champions, all that kind of stuff. And, and professionally as well. Um, Who's, who's, who's the team you think this year in college football is going to going to take take that championship? I'm going with the Gators. Really? Right. Okay. Why why Florida? Uh, I like the Gators. Okay. Okay. I like the hires. Yeah, coach, I, I, I kind of like the Gators. You know. Okay. I uh, I really really like that head coach hire. Uh, you know, Dan Mullen was down there before with Urban Meyer as the offensive coordinator. Uh, he's got a lot of ties down there. And, man, that talent down in Florida is, is ridiculous. And you just hope that he's not, you know, maybe a year or two late because you got, uh, you know, Willie Taggart of Florida State. He, he's a beast at recruiting. He's going to get players. Uh, Mark Richt at Miami, that, dude can, that dude's pretty good too. And Charlie Strong. At South Florida, he's he's gonna he's gonna turn some heads too. So I'm interested to see what Florida's gonna do as well. I'm I'm a Nebraska fan, so for me to see uh, hometown boy come back to coach our team, um, we're not gonna be we'll be lucky to win seven games. But if we win seven eight games, man, you just better give that guy coach of the year after going four and eight right. last year. So um, you know Nick Saban's gonna be tough again. Uh, Alabama's going to be good. they got to figure out that quarterback situation. But uh, I think Clemson, that's my, that's my team to pick this year. I think, I think Clemson's going to be the one to – I think they're going to run the table this year. They, right. I think, I think you should be a sports commentator. <laughs> I, I think uh, with da- Dabo Sweeney, he's proven he's not a flash in the pan. He's, he's a really, really good coach. And – you know, he didn't even blink it out. He lost the number one overall quarterback uh, two years ago, Hunter Johnson. He lost him and didn't even blink an eye. So, I mean, right. that's pretty crazy to lose it. I mean, that just tells you what kind of talent, uh, what kind of program that guy's built there at Clemson to lose the number one overall prospect in the country from two years ago and just say, ah, whatever. We got plenty of quarterbacks. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And, um, Ohio State's going to be another good one. They, they've got uh, – they lost their quarterback, but Urban Myers is a good coach. He's a great recruiter. So, they'll be interested to see what he can do. But I think Florida I, – I kind of have to agree. I think Florida might might turn some heads this year and, and surprise a lot of people. they got a lot of talent. They just need the right coach yeah. to, to be able to put it all together. But um, but then, what, then moving on, they got the NFL. Um, what would – what, what's your thoughts on Baker Mayfield? Is he going to be successful? Is or, or is he going to be just another Johnny Manziel? Uh, I think he'll be successful. Okay. Did you uh, happen to see that interview a few days ago with uh, Colin Cowherd by chance? No, I was I was caught up. I didn't see it. Okay, so I, I, I wasn't a big Baker Mayfield fan. I, I didn't like, you know, 
the the cross grabs, the hip thrusts, you know, the let's throw the flag right in the middle of the field at Ohio State. But, you know, he, he goes on the Colin Coward show, and Colin Coward basically just calls him out, says, you're a bad teammate. Um, you, you have a lot of antics. You're immature. What do you have to say about it? And he just said, hey, football's a violent game. It's competitive. And, you know, I'm going to celebrate with my team. And uh, Colin Cowherd used that to segue to uh, a clip of him running away from his teammates and, and over to the fans. And he said, I don't like that. That's not what you should do. And Baker Mayfield's response was, did you see the other three touchdowns? The other three touchdowns, I celebrate with my team. On this particular play, we have fans that traveled to Ohio, and I want to give them some love and credit for them traveling and coming all this way. So how does that make me a bad teammate? I went right back to the sideline and celebrated with my team. So I kind of shut Coward up. And I, I think the guy, he doesn't have unrealistic expectations. He knows that Tyrod Taylor is a better quarterback right now. He knows that he doesn't have uh, the game right now to compete and be successful right away. And he's willing to learn and willing to bide his time. And I think that's going to... I. Pluto, the dwarf planet, is an incomprehensibly long distance away. Seriously, it's currently more than 5 billion kilometers away from Earth, and it challenges the imagination that anyone could ever travel that kind of distance. And yet, NASA's New Horizons has been making the journey, and it's going to arrive there July 2015. Now, you may have just heard about this news, and I promise you, when New Horizons makes its close encounter, it's going to be everywhere. So let me give you the advanced knowledge on just how amazing this journey is and what it would take to cross this enormous gulf in the solar system. Pluto travels on a highly elliptical orbit around the Sun. At its closest point, known as perihelion, Pluto is only 4.4 billion kilometers out. That's nearly 30 AU, or 30 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And Pluto last reached this point on September 5, 1989. At its most distant point, known as aphelion, Pluto reaches a distance of 7.3 billion kilometers, or 49 AU. And this will happen on August 23rd, 2113. Now I know, these numbers seem incomprehensible and they lose their meaning. So let me give you some context. Light itself takes 4.6 hours to travel from the Earth to Pluto. If you wanted to send a signal to Pluto, it would take 4.6 hours for your transmission to reach Pluto, and then an additional 4.6 hours for their message to return to us. So let's talk spacecraft. When New Horizons blasted off from Earth, it was going 58,000 kilometers per hour. And just for comparison, astronauts in orbit are merely jaunting along at 28,000 kilometers per hour. That's its speed going away from the Earth. When you add up the speed of the Earth, New Horizons was moving away from the Sun at a blistering 160,000 kilometers per hour. Now, unfortunately, the pull of gravity from the Sun slowed New Horizons down. So by the time it reached Jupiter, it was only going 68,000 kilometers per hour. It was able to steal a little velocity from Jupiter and crank its speed back up to 83,000 kilometers per hour. And when it finally reaches Pluto, it'll be going about 50,000 kilometers per hour. 
So how long did this journey take? New Horizons launched on January 19, 2006, and it reached Pluto on July 14, 2015. So do a little math, and you'll find that it's taken 9 years, 5 months, and 25 days. The Voyager spacecraft did the distance between Earth and Pluto in about 12.5 years, although neither spacecraft actually flew past Pluto. And the Pioneer spacecraft completed the journey in about 11 years. So could you get to Pluto faster? Absolutely. With a more powerful rocket and a lighter spacecraft payload, you could definitely shave down the flight time, but there are a couple of problems. Rockets are expensive, and coincidentally, bigger rockets are super expensive. The other problem is that getting to Pluto faster means that it's harder to do any kind of science once you reach the dwarf planet. New Horizons made the fastest journey to Pluto, but it's also going to fly past the planet at 50,000 kilometers per hour. That's less time to take high resolution images. And if you wanted to actually go into orbit around Pluto, you'd need more rockets to lose all that velocity. So how long does it take to get to Pluto? Roughly 9 to 12 years. You could probably get there faster, but then you'd get less science done, and it probably wouldn't be worth the rush. So are you super excited about the New Horizons flyby of Pluto? Tell us in the comments below. Thanks for watching. Never miss an episode by clicking subscribe. And our Patreon community is the reason these shows happen. And we'd like to thank Sankar James Fredsty and Gerald Sezko, and the rest of the members who support us in making great space and astronomy content. Members get advanced access to episodes, extras, contests, and other shenanigans with Jay, myself, and the rest of the team. Want to get on the action? Click here. At its closest point, known as Perihelion, Pluto is only, oh no, the font colors changed to purple. I don't know why. Tonight, votes are being counted in the most pivotal elections in Turkey's 100-year history. The outcome could determine whether the NATO ally returns to democratic rule or continues on its path towards autocracy. CBS's MTS Tayyip is in London tracking the latest developments. Good evening. Jerika, good evening. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is fighting for his political life tonight as the strongman faces off against a unified opposition to his decades-long rule. These elections have all the trappings of a major democracy in action. But make no mistake, this is a vote unlike any other, as Erdogan, a populist authoritarian, fights to keep his grip on a nation he's pushed from secular to religious, liberal to right-wing, but also into a global player as a NATO member with close ties to Russia. And this is the man trying to unseat Erdogan, opposition leader Kemal Kilic-Daroglu, a soft-spoken economist and retired civil servant who's promising to return the modern Turkish state to its secular roots, ally it closer to the West, and bring it back into a parliamentary democracy. But it's the economy that has so many Turks concerned as they struggle to cope with record high inflation and a cost of living crisis, while still reeling from a massive earthquake in February that killed over 50,000 people.
Now at this hour, it's looking increasingly like the election will go into a runoff expected in two weeks. A vote, Sharika, that could reshape Turkey. I'll be watching that closely. MTS Tayyip, thank you. This video is brought to you by NordVPN. On Sunday, some 64 million Turkish citizens went to the polls to elect their president and parliament. Before the election, polling gave Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and the six-party opposition coalition a slight lead over incumbent president Recep Erdogan and his AKP party, who've been in power for the best part of two decades. But on Monday morning, with over 99% of votes counted, it looks like Erdogan has actually outperformed the polls and is in fact about four points ahead of Kılıçdaroğlu. As neither candidate has reached the 50% threshold, thanks to a strong showing from the third candidate, Ogan, this means that there'll be a runoff election on May the 28th between Erdogan and Kılıçdaroğlu. So in this video, we're going to have a look at the results, why Kılıçdaroğlu apparently underperformed the polls, and how the upcoming runoff election might pan out. So let's start with the results. Turkish citizens had to cast two votes, one for their parliament and one for their president. Let's start with the parliamentary results. Turkey's parliament is split into 87 multi-member constituencies. Within each constituency, MPs are elected via a proportional representation system using the de Hunt method. There's also a 7% minimum vote threshold for parties, but this doesn't apply for independent candidates. In practice, this means Turkey's system is broadly proportional, but it slightly advantages larger parties. Anyway, at Sunday's election, Erdogan's AKP party emerged as the largest party, winning 35.5% of the vote and 266 seats. While this might sound like a good result, and in some senses it is given how the polls were looking before the election, this is by far and away the AKP's worst result in recent history. For context, they won 49.5% of the vote in 2018 and 41% of the vote in 2015. Kılıçdaroğlu's CHP party came second, winning about 25% of the vote and 169 seats. But a strong showing by the AKP's main competitor party, the MHP, who won 10% of the vote and 50 seats, means that the pro-Erdogan coalition has kept its majority in parliament. This is a remarkably good result for the MHP, a staunchly conservative Turkish nationalist party who were polling on about 7% in the run-up to the election. Generally, the CHP performed well in urban areas, winning majorities in Ankara, Izmir and along the western coast, while Erdogan and the AKP performed well in rural areas, which tend to be more conservative and retain the upper hand in Istanbul. As expected, the pro-Kurdish Yesil Sol, the successor to the MHP party, performed well in the southeast, where most of Turkey's Kurdish minority lives. In the presidential election, Erdogan came in first place with 49.2% of the vote, about four points ahead of Kılıçdaroğlu, who won about 45% of the vote. Erdogan was denied a majority by a strong showing from third candidate Sinan Ogan, who won 5.3% of the vote. Again, Erdogan performed well in rural areas in central Turkey, while Kılıçdaroğlu performed better in urban and Kurdish areas. Kılıçdaroğlu also performed pretty well in areas that have been affected by the earthquake, especially in areas to the west of Gaziantep, although Erdogan put out a strong showing in Gaziantep itself, a traditional Erdogan stronghold. 
As no candidate got 50%, this means there'll be a two-candidate runoff election between Erdogan and Kilic Durolu on May the 28th. All this raises the question, though, why did Kilic Durolu underperform the polls? Before the election, most polls had Kilic Durolu on track to win in the first round. Not only did this not happen, but he was also beaten by Erdogan. This is probably something to do with polling methodology. It's easier to contact young people living in urban areas, who are more likely to answer the phone or respond to an online survey. And it's hard to measure sentiment in Turkey's rural areas, which ended voting overwhelmingly for Erdogan. Erdogan might have also been helped by the turnout, which was extraordinarily high. Turkey always has a very high turnout rate. It was 86% in 2018 and 85% in 2015. But provisional data suggests it was about 90% this year. While you might expect this to help Kilic Durolu, it looks like it might have been pro-Erdogan voters who came out to defend the incumbent against the possibility of change. At this point, we should say that both Kilic Durolu and Ogan have voiced concerns about the vote count. Kilic Durolu has accused Erdogan and the state-run Anadolu news agency of delaying results in places where Kilic Durolu was doing well to exaggerate Erdogan's lead, while Ogan claimed that he had heard of overseas votes being manipulated. However, the fact that the counts from the state-run Anadolu news agency and the opposition-aligned Anka news agency basically matched up suggests that the votes were indeed counted fairly, especially because the two agencies actually count the votes differently. Essentially, Anadolu counts the votes at the provincial level, while Anka counts them at individual polling stations, to make sure there's no change in the numbers as they're being delivered. Generally, this was a pretty great result for Turkish democracy. While the election wasn't necessarily fair, the voting process was almost entirely peaceful and free. Turnout was high, and both sides broadly agree on the final count. So, who's going to win the runoff on May the 28th? Well, at the moment, Erdogan is definitely the favourite. Not only did he win the most votes the first time around, but Ogan, the third candidate, is ideologically closer to Erdogan than Kilic Durolu. Ogan is a die-hard Turkish nationalist, who used to be the member of the MHP, Erdogan's main coalition partner in government, and he performed best in conservative areas, which are generally Erdogan-leaning. While Ogan has said he'll support Kilic Durolu if Kilic Durolu agrees to exclude Kurdish parties from his alliance, Kilic Durolu is unlikely to agree to this, and even if he did, he'd need to win something like 80% of Ogan's votes to beat Erdogan, which is unlikely. Perhaps the only thing that could ruin Erdogan is the economy. As we've explained in previous videos, the lira is down over 60% compared to before the pandemic, and it's only being kept afloat by intervention from Turkey's central bank. So far, Erdogan has been able to maintain his popularity by dishing out generous handouts to key constituencies. But if the currency crisis gets worse, which is at least possible, and Erdogan proves unable to protect his key constituencies, then he might finally pay a political price for the economic crisis he's created. All in all, it's not a good result for Turkey's opposition. Kilic Durolu looks unlikely to win on the 28th, and even if he does, he'll struggle to get anything done given the composition of Parliament. A few weeks ago, we were invited to Downing Street, where we were briefed on the government's anti-fraud plan. As part of this, we found out that more younger people have fallen victim to online scams than over 35s. And, as our analytics frequently tell us, our audience skews younger, which means that you're likely in this age bracket. So, if you want to protect yourself online, you should try NordVPN. 
NordVPN has a bunch of tools that keep you safe. First, they have a feature called Threat Protection, which protects you from malware, trackers, malicious ads, and phishing scams. But that's not all. NordVPN also has dark web monitoring services, which, even if you somehow do fall victim to online fraud or scams, notifies you if your details end up online, so you can promptly change your passwords and keep yourself protected. And what's more, if technology isn't really your thing, don't worry, NordVPN offers 24-7 customer support and even a 30-day money-back guarantee for all users. So check out our link in the description to get your discount on their two-year plan, plus four extra months on top of that. Thanks for your support. Love 